Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Ricardo Franco, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Dr. Josh Barocas, Associate Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases Physician at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, about vaccination rates, herd immunity, and masking for vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. Thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Franco, let me start with you. You practice in Alabama, a state where the COVID vaccination rate is very low. What is the rate currently? And tell us about what you're seeing on the front lines. Unfortunately, Alabama vaccination rates stands at 38% currently. In some rural counties, actually, vaccination rates are still below 30%. Like in many other areas across the country, we see an increased number of younger patients with severe disease. This is very concerning, especially because we had 39 pregnant women admitted to our university hospital with COVID-19 in August, and the UAB Children's Hospital is currently treating 20 pediatric COVID patients. Our inpatient infectious diseases service has reached record number of consults during this latest Delta wave. And I also see patients in clinic or I assist the employee health team tracking a large number of healthcare workers contracting COVID-19 as we speak. I see that vaccine hesitancy remains very commonplace here in Alabama for a variety of reasons, either because patients still need further deliberations about vaccination or because of persistent vaccine rejection due to deeply rooted distrust or even dissent against vaccines. To place this situation in perspective, Alabama currently has about 2,800 COVID patients admitted to hospitals. 880 of them are in ICU beds, which is an all-time pandemic record. At least 50% of the ICU beds statewide are occupied by COVID patients, and we are 73 beds short of meeting the ongoing ICU demand that we're experiencing right now. Dr. Franco, of the patients you're seeing in your hospital, what percentage are unvaccinated? And how much of the surge that you're seeing is due to the Delta variant? Here at the UAB hospital, we currently have 170 COVID patients admitted. 89% of them are not vaccinated. We also have 66 patients in ICU among those. And 92% of these ICU patients are not vaccinated. And we also have 44 patients on mechanical ventilation. And similarly, 89% of them, the vast majority, are not vaccinated. The vast majority of cases are due to Delta variant. And except for one rural county, the whole state has high community transmission with greater than 100 cases per 100,000 population. 
and a really high percentage of positive screening at 22%. And Delta here in Jefferson County encompasses 91% of the cases, which I think is similar to the distribution of Delta in many other areas in the country. Dr. Franco, can you talk about the concept of herd immunity? Where are we as a nation in trying to achieve herd immunity? And do you think we'll ever get there? So, Amanda, uh, herd immunity is basically the estimated basic replication number or R0, which is the number of new cases that an existing case generates at the very beginning of an epidemic when everybody is in theory susceptible. The basic replication number of the original SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan was 2.5. The alpha variant was 4 to 5, and for Delta is in between 5 to 8. By comparison, this basic replication number for 1918 influenza was 1.5, and that would give an estimated herd immunity threshold of 35%. For measles, and the opposite of this has a extremely high replication number greater than 14 with the highest herd immunity thresholds about 95%. So for Delta, the herd immunity threshold is believed to be around 90%. But this is based on traditional ways of estimating herd immunity thresholds that assume that vaccines elicit perfect protection against infection. So more nuanced estimates that take into account the possibility of breakthrough cases after vaccination pushes this herd immunity threshold to even higher levels, approaching high 90s. So despite these challenges with the Delta variant, the concept of herd immunity remains critically important. We don't like to see breakthrough infections, but the key here is that the overwhelming majority of infections occur among the unvaccinated. Comparisons of case rates between low vaccination counties, where less than 30% of the population is vaccinated, and high vaccination counties, where more than 60% of the population is vaccinated, shows much higher case rates in low vaccination counties. So because the overwhelming majority of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths occur in not vaccinated individuals, both in high and low vaccination counties, vaccination is working through this Delta wave. And unvaccinated people is benefiting from greater herd immunity protection in high vaccination areas. So this is far from ideal at this time, but this herd immunity should become more effective as we push more vaccinations. And the very interesting question you have is, do we think we'll ever get there? Well, what virologists have to say about this is that it is very important to understand that this is not a situation where SARS-CoV-2 is becoming endemic. An endemic virus is a virus where infections are maintained at a baseline steady state with a fixed number of infections that does not grow or fall. So chickenpox is endemic, but HIV is not because HIV is still spreading. Besides, if we're thinking of an endemic state to be achieved in SARS-CoV-2, 
at what level we should settle. Because the difference between high and low endemicity for this virus would be very significant. Again, pointing out why vaccination is so important right now. IDSA invites you to kick off ID Week 2021 with Chasing the Sun, COVID-19 Beyond the Horizon. This global event begins Wednesday, September 29 at 10 a.m. Eastern. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and other partners have provided funds to offset the cost of attending Chasing the Sun, which gives you access to health authorities from around the world offering unique global perspectives and data on COVID-19. Register now at idweek.org. Dr. Barocas, let's turn to you to talk about masking. Many people are confused about who needs to wear a mask and under what circumstances. What is the current guidance on masking? Before I answer, I I just have to commend uh, Dr. Franco and uh, all of the providers in in Alabama right now. I know that they're under a ton of stress and and duress and um, and. they should be commended for all of the hard work that they're doing and, and physicians and, and providers across the country, nurses, physicians, NPs, PAs, everyone, environmental services, uh, workers, cafeteria workers. Thank you for everything that you all are doing. Now let's in talking about masks, you're right. This is a confusing topic uh, it seems to change with the tides and it seems to change day by day. Um, not really anymore, um, but at one point it did. And that's partly because what we are learning about the, the pandemic is still ongoing and new curveballs get thrown at us like the Delta variant. So whereas a couple months ago we said, you know, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask indoors. Uh, given the spread of the Delta variant and uh, the high numbers of, um, of breakthrough cases that we are seeing, the, the current guidance is actually quite clear. And, and I, I'll say, as frustrating as it might be, um, it's, it's brought us back a little bit. So first and foremost, if you're not fully vaccinated and you're over the age of two, so for those listeners who are under the age of two, you don't have to wear a mask. But if, if you are not fully vaccinated and age two or older, you really should be wearing a mask in indoor public places. Now, the outdoor settings get a little bit trickier because... There's a lot that goes into getting exposed to the virus that causes COVID disease, right? So if you are the only person standing in a park on a very windy day, or you're a group of people on the beach on on a very windy day, then the chances of you contracting COVID, contracting the, the virus are very small. But of course, as we enclose ourselves, as we get in larger groups of people, um, as there are more and more unvaccinated people around, then our risk goes up. So in many outdoor settings, vaccinated and unvaccinated people don't necessarily need to wear a mask. However, if you're in a, a close contact with lots of people for even in an outdoor setting for extended periods of time, let's say a concert or a football game, it's probably wise uh, to wear 
a mask also because you don't know the percentage of unvaccinated people. If you're fully vaccinated, but perhaps um, are taking immunocompromising medications or have a condition that makes you um, immunocompromised, you may not be fully protected, even if you're fully vaccinated. And so in those cases, you should be wearing a mask indoors as well. At this point, the working consensus is that everyone indoors really for the sake of not just themselves, but their community to maximize protection against the Delta variant, everyone really should be wearing a mask indoors. Outdoors, let's take into account the context. Let's take into account how long you're there, who else is around you, how many people, and we can make individualized decisions. But really indoors at this point, I would suggest everyone wear a mask. I know I do. Dr. Barocas, does local transmission factor into whether one should return to wearing a mask? Does local transmission, you know, at this point, I would say no. And the reason that I say no is we're talking about wearing a mask indoors, first and foremost. We know that along the course of the 22 months of this pandemic, we've been behind. The virus has continued to be one step ahead of us at each turn, and it will continue to be one step ahead of us at each turn if what we do is simply adjust our actions by retrospective data. So last week, let's say that local transmission was um, was moderate to low in community A. Well, presumably that community wasn't enforcing, for good reason, wasn't enforcing local mask mandates and um, encouraging vaccinated people to, to wear a mask indoors. And what we see nearly across the board is that that community, and I'm using sort of a, an example, an archetype community now, but that community this week has higher transmission. And presumably without implementing more uh, masking requirements and, and making masks more accessible to people, Next week, we're going to see higher transmission. That's how this works. We know that our R not, as Dr. Franco has so eloquently talked about, is not at zero. We know it's higher. So we know that the virus is outperforming human behavior. And so what we need to do is try to be ahead of it. So in my estimation, no, local transmission shouldn't be a factor right now. We know that local transmission is lagging behind what we what actually is happening or local transmission numbers, at least, are behind what's actually happening. So I would encourage everyone to wear a mask now, at least indoors, vaccinated or unvaccinated, so that we could finally get ahead. Thank you, Dr. Barocas. Can you speak a little bit more about why it's so important, even for those of us who are fully vaccinated, to continue wearing a mask indoors? At an individual level, the vaccine is really just rubber. 
<laughs> if you go back to that old childhood uh, saying, I'm rubber, you're glue, really the vaccine is rubber. It's it's internal rubber. It helps deflect the virus once it's in you. It helps your immune system respond more quickly, but it doesn't keep the actual virus out of you. And what we need is that additional layer of protection with a mask. The mask keeps the virus out of you. So that's the first line of defense. If we can keep the virus out of your body, then there's virtually zero chance that you will get the disease. Once the virus enters your body, then it's up to the vaccine and your immune system and how your body functions to rid yourself of that virus before it causes disease. I don't know about you, but for me, I would rather have two lines of defense. That first line of defense that says, I'm going to do everything I can to deflect this before it comes in. And the second line of defense that says, if that fails, then I've got this immune system and I've got this vaccination in me that's going to help expel it from my body. I'd rather have two lines of defense than one. Many areas in the country are in the midst of heated debates about children wearing masks in schools. Can you talk about why it's so important that students and staff, even those who are fully vaccinated, wear masks in schools? Aside from kids who have been who are either uh, 12 and older and have received the vaccine or kids who are younger than 12 that have been in one of the vaccine trials, kids aren't vaccinated. And so going back to that whole two lines of defense thing, without a mask, those eight-year-olds, those nine-year-olds have zero lines of defense. The virus can get in, and then you're relying on an eight-year-old's immune system that's unvaccinated to rid the body of the virus. Now, when we talk about students that are vaccinated, staff that are vaccinated, I think it's important to take a step back talking about herd immunity. I don't want to talk about herd immunity. I want to talk about who is our herd? Who is our community? As we've heard over and over and over, Viruses do not understand walls. Viruses do not understand borders. Viruses do not understand that you live in County A and I live in County B. Viruses only want to survive. And so if we truly are to get this under control, then we need to see our world as our herd. We need to stop seeing this school district as a community, this classroom as a community, we need to start seeing all of us as a community. We are not going to achieve herd immunity until we get the vast proportion of the world vaccinated. And that includes every sector, every community, every, every group. 
And so within schools, I know that this has become a hotbed topic and I don't want to talk about the politics behind it. I want to talk about the human life that we are protecting. And it's not just the kids in schools. It's not just the teachers, though both of those groups are incredibly valuable. But we don't know who brings who brings with them an immunocompromised state. We don't know in whom the vaccine might fail. We don't know and we aren't going to get to herd immunity. We aren't going to get to even a an endemic virus that we can live with until we start seeing our herd as everyone. And so while we are all debating personal freedoms and um and and our personal rights, I think it's important to think about the global community. And that truly what is happening in room 102 at your child's school does have an effect in London, in South Africa, in Mumbai. It has an effect everywhere. And we are in this a global community in which we cannot defeat or even live with this virus until we start seeing ourselves as a global community. One of the ideas that we keep hearing in these mass debates, specifically around school settings, is the false notion that children don't get sick from COVID. Can you speak a little bit to to that and to help educate some of individuals who don't necessarily recognize the threat that COVID-19 poses to children? Children's hospitals are filling up. Those are that is one metric. We see kids in hospitals with respiratory illness caused by SARS-CoV-2. They have COVID disease. We are seeing this in Birmingham. We're seeing this in Denver. We're seeing this in Boston and across the globe. Kids are getting sick. As of now, kids are one of the most vulnerable populations. And why is that? Because all the virus wants to do is survive. It's just like we all as humans take the path of least resistance. It's hard to survive if you're a virus in a well-masked, well-vaccinated adult. It's much easier to survive in a child with a developing immune system that's unvaccinated. So knowing that the viral load is higher with Delta, knowing that it replicates faster with Delta, kids are now bearing the burden of this virus because they are an excellent host from the virus's standpoint. We see this in many of these school districts that are fighting mask mandates. Entire student bodies are having to quarantine for 10, 14 days. Uh, One recent report said that uh, within the first week of school, one school district that was a massive school district had effectively five to 10% of its entire population had to quarantine. And I know that five to 10% sounds low, but 
that's an enormous for a large school district of 20 to 30,000 kids. That's a lot of kids who we are exposing to a virus that we don't know the long-term effects of and whose immune systems are not fully ready to handle the viral burden that the Delta variant is bringing with it. And so it's very important that we try again to put our personal freedom our need for personal freedom aside to say we are all part of a global community and part of being in that global community means protecting vulnerable populations like kids. Thank you, Dr. Brokus. One last question for both of you. Why is the Delta variant so much more contagious than the Alpha variant? It is not totally clear at this point what makes what the attributions, all the attributions that Delta variant has compared to others. But what has been observed is that key mutations in the spike protein are associated with a greater facility for this virus to entry respiratory tract cells. And from there, like I said, because of mechanism not totally understood, to grow more rapidly inside respiratory tract cells to much higher levels with greater viral loads, sometimes a thousand times more copies of the virus in the respiratory tract compared to uh, other strains, alpha and the original virus. Patients with Delta, they become ill uh, sooner. So there's just this viral load surge which again, associated with those mutations with a intracellular mechanisms that are still to be fully understood. Well, at this time, I'd like to thank both Drs. Franco and Barocas for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jessic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.